It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Welcome to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. Uh, I am currently going through a series on spiritual lessons from World War II, uh, which sounds really strange, and you would think I'm just uh, some war buff uh, historian. I'm not, even though I, I guess I would be an amateur version of one, but my interest in history and war is decidedly to know Christ and to understand Christ working in the lives of men and women. One of my favorite collections of historical books is called Beacon Lights of History, which actually is, is written in the 1800s, and it's a great collection of, uh, of books on history, but what it does is it looks at the men and women of history and studies them, basically showing that all of history flows out of God's interaction with men and women. It's not just volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. It's, it's men and women that make up the story, but actually, in the global sense, the story is his story. And uh, that's always been one of my favorite ways. You've probably heard that said before, uh, especially if you're homeschooled, that history is his story. But, hey, you know, the, the moment you actually come to that conclusion, you understand what it's all about. You recognize that he is the epicenter of all history. It all r- leads to him. Everything in the Old Testament, everything uh, B.C., if you want to say it that way, is leading to Christ and the cross. And everything since, if we want to say it, the A.D., is flowing like a river from that high mountain. He is the definition of why we're here. He's the reason for it, and he's the reason we live. And so if you want to understand history, you need to understand Christ. He's the key that unlocks it. (coughs) So this is called the Barman Declaration. And this is part four in the series. By the way, I I see the date on the the screen. Happy Valentine's Day. that's sort of fun to share Valentine's Day with you guys. I don't know if you have any uh, cards for me or little, uh, <laughs> remember those little hearts? Uh, those, uh, I don't know what they're made of, uh, but uh, remember handing those out? It was always a big deal when I was in elementary school. You'd make all your Valentine's cards for everyone and you'd put a little, a couple extra hearts in for the cute girls. I don't know if you guys <laughs> did that, but uh, you know, just because when they open it, like, oh, and they get like three hearts instead of this guy over here gets one. Uh, <laughs> So, so happy Valentine's Day. I don't have any cards for you. I feel really bad uh, that I didn't come better prepared, but I did come with a message, okay? And it's a, it's a heart-level message, so I, this, is, this is a very, very powerful one. So the Barman Declaration, that's somewhat of an obscure statement. It's actually a historic thing in the, in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's going to take place in Germany, very specifically Nazi Germany. And you're going to see one of the most critical decisions amongst the church to know how to address evil that is lurking in our midst. The two. So, yes, I say it a lot. There are always twos. And so I will always position, especially if you're seeing this visually, uh, I always move over to the left side of the stage, or my left as a speaker, and I say, you know, you have the first, and then I move over to the right side of the stage. I say, and you have a second. And so in the, in the uh, Garden of Eden, you have two trees. Uh, you have 
uh, Cain and Abel. And the first, for whatever reason, is always like a problem point. It never satisfies. It doesn't uh, reach the purpose of God, and so it falls short. And so you have like Cain and Abel, they both offer something. Cain's gift is rejected, but Abel's is received. The second finds pleasure in God's eyes. He finds uh, some kind of receptivity. It's just interesting, but in all of history, this seems to be the way God is showcasing himself in his word. So you have uh, Ishmael and Isaac. The firstborn cannot satisfy God. The second does. You have Esau, Jacob. And I mean, it's just an extremely interesting thought. The firstborn isn't the, the right answer, but there's twos. And so in the New Testament, you're going to see flesh spirit. We are first born in the flesh, and we must be born again. There must be a second man. And the second man, according to Paul, is Jesus. And so what we see is this overriding issue in Scripture is Adam, Jesus. You have two. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Many of us have appropriated our Christian faith, and we have believed, but we have attempted to live out our life in Adam. In, a, in other words, in our own determination, in our own willpower, our own knowledge tank, in our own IQ, we want to do and use what we have natively to serve Jesus. And it's very noble, you have to admit, it's very noble that I would say, hey God, I want to serve you with all my vim and vigor. And yet God says, look, I need you to come to the end of yourself so that I can have your body and I can do the work in and through you. Well, excuse me, but hey, I have a lot to bring to the table. And he might say, no doubt, yes, that's true. You could bring something to the table, but it would fall short. It is not what would please me. And so what I'm going to ask of you, Eric, is that you would consecrate what you do have to me and let me have it. And in so doing, let me fill you with something that you can't bring to the table, but only I can. And then he will take what I would have wanted to bring to the table, and he can choose to use it how he would want. For instance, I have natural giftings, and they're not bad. They're God-given. But as long as I take my natural gifting and I say, God, I will use this for you, I'm actually misusing the body of Eric Ludi because the best use, the highest purpose of the body of Eric Ludi is to submit it to Jesus Christ. Giftings and all. And I trust him because what if I had his one gifting that I thought I could really use for Jesus? Imagine that I had the world's greatest singing voice. And, uh, and so I'm thinking, I could use that for God. It's funny because God could say, you know, I really appreciate your sensitivity to me, Eric, but could you give me your singing voice? Well, God, if I give you my singing voice, what would you do with it? I would do with it what I designed to happen with it, which ironically might be, that he doesn't use it the way I would have thought. Or he asks me to give it up for three years. It's like, what? God, why would you do that? The greatest use of the human life, the human body, the human gifts, the human resource is to entrust it to God and let him use it. But many of us have attempted to utilize this life in our own strength for the glory of God even. And so God wants to correct that because when you do, you will fall short. And in a time of crisis, you will find that you will have a habit pattern in your life of turning to you as a solution instead of to God. And if you do that, you will find that you will fail in the day of testing because you will be unready to stand up to something that takes a super heroic spiritual effort to defy. Welcome to Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. If you're a Christian in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s, you are facing an epic test. 
And if you are functioning in the flesh, thinking of yourself, thinking of how you can do this for God, you are going to be crushed in that season. However, there are those, if you could say there are twos, there are two churches in Germany, and there's almost always two churches that you can find in every persecuted country. There's a church that will compromise and placate the evil government, and there's a church that will stand apart and gladly die, be imprisoned and suffer cruel deaths for the glory of Jesus. In every period of time, when the heat turns up on the church of Jesus Christ, there's always two. So the authentic and the counterfeit. So in Matthew 7, we're going to see a division of twos. And of course, Jesus himself is going to say, look, when the judgment comes, I'm going to separate uh, the goats from the sheep. He talks about wheat and tares. They grow up amongst each other and they look similar. However, when it comes to the day of harvest, we will separate out the wheat from the tares. So Matthew 7, 20 through 23, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So there's two things that have already been mentioned. By their fruits you shall know them. How do you know a wheat from a tare? By their fruits. How do you know a sheep from a goat? By their fruits. Now, that's a strange thing because if you hang around sheep and goats, you don't think about fruit, right? However, one is going to, according to Jesus, one is going to not do something. When they see the hungry, when they see the naked, when they see the imprisoned, they will not do anything. They will not lift a hoof. But then there's the sheep that will actually do something. And so it's by their fruits that you will know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, but he that does the will of my Father. There is a doing to Christianity which sort of gets us a little nervous. It's like, where's Eric going with this? Is he talking about a works-based Christianity? It's interesting, it's a tough one to cover because of our paranoia and the legalism that has crept into the church of Jesus Christ. Over the, I mean, that, that started, by the way, 2,000 years ago. Legalism isn't just a modern phenomenon. It has always been there. It comes out of the Judaic system, which is, God, we will keep the law, and therefore we will be righteous in your eyes. And God says, no, no one is righteous by the law. That we are all made righteous by faith in Christ's work on the cross. He is our clothing of righteousness. However, when we are clothed in that righteousness, his Holy Spirit moves in. And what does his Holy Spirit want to do? He wants to take this body and do what? Do works. He wants to produce fruit. And so the fruit of the Spirit is, and you could fill in the, the blanks, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How will you know those that follow Christ? Their fruits will show them. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. How do you know? In other words, it's evidenced in the life that is lived. So if there is no life being lived, you have to question, did that life actually get changed by Jesus? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That is a heavy scripture that most of us don't particularly care to dwell on, okay? And we always talk about refrigerator quotes, you know, these ones that are really, you know, I make thee lie down in green pastures, and he's going to restore my soul. Oh, blessed be God. Those are nice refrigerator quotes because they make us feel good. Anything that, you know, strokes us and makes us feel like, yes, we're valuable are wonderful refrigerator quotes, and they're in the Bible. God does care about us, and he does see uh, us as having value. However, there's 
a reality of how the gospel works and engages with the dark realm. And I tell you what, whenever I see that, there is a craving inside of me to never be the one that hears those words. I want to be someone that God knows. I want to know my God, and I want to be known by my God. So in those moments, I'll say, God, look, if there's any blockade, if there's anything that's wrong in my life, please. I mean, it's a craving. It's a deep desire to have the authentic, real version of Christianity in my life. So we're going to Germany in 1933, and there's a phenomenon that even to this day, if you say an Aryan paragraph, well, that means something. Well, maybe not to you, but that means something historically. There is an actual Aryan paragraph. It's an actual paragraph in a German document that is released when Hitler first comes to power. However, it, it symbolizes something because in every generation, in a sense, there could be an Aryan paragraph. And it's something that is very easy to overlook. It's like, eh, let's not make a big deal out of that. The question is, how do you respond to the Aryan paragraph? The Aryan paragraph is going to separate out sheep from goats. I mean, it literally does. It, it is a dividing point. So I'm going to define the Aryan paragraph this way. It's a cultural event or a socio-political occurrence that works to separate out the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goats. So it's like, what is the Aryan paragraph? Hitler is going to come into power in 1933 in Germany. And he has an agenda. He's written out his agenda in a book called Mein Kampf when he was imprisoned. And it's very clear. He wants to destroy a certain people group. He feels that they are the greatest threat to his native country, Germany, and to the purity of that country, which is Aryan. Okay, that's how he would describe it. This is an entire doctrine of, uh, of, of that time, and still today, ironically, white supremacists still linger near such thoughts. And yet... You're going to see Hitler bring something to the table when he becomes, uh, when he gains that chancellor position in Germany, and he is going to, in a sense, test the Church of Jesus Christ. How's everyone responding? So Arian, by definition, means noble, unmixed, of the pure bloodline, not Jewish. Okay, you're starting to get the hint of where this is going. What is Hitler going to drop the gauntlet on? He is against the Jews. He believes the Jews stabbed Germany in the back. They are not of the pure bloodline, the Aryan bloodline, which is pure and noble and unmixed. They are some kind of hybrid, and they are dangerous. And he looks at them as the arch nemesis. Now remember, Jesus was a Jew. So <laughs> when you think about this, you recognize this is a direct hit on the Jew. This is, this is a, a challenge, a gauntlet that is going down. Now, I don't know how you would respond if one people group was isolated out in our culture and basically told that they have no privileges, that you know, you, they, they can't do normal commerce, they can't have any job positions in the government, they can't have any teaching positions, you know, they can't act, we can't have any actors that are of this people group. And, uh, oh, and by the way, don't, if you shop in their store, you will be penalized. So as a result, the only people that can shop in a Jew's store are going to be Jews. So as a result, he's shrinking down their ability to function. Slowly but surely, he's crushing them. The story of the Arian paragraph and the confessing church. So I'm going to give you a, a, a period of time, 1931 to 1945. 
there is a movement in Germany that is going to gain momentum, it's going to be fulfilled in Hitler, and then it is going to move into an extreme state where literally they are building concentration camps and exterminating millions of Jews. And Christians will stand by and do nothing. Now, most of us, when we think about the days of Noah, will say, well, I'm getting on that ark. Most of us, when we hear about Hitler and Nazism and the Jews, are gonna, we say, I would do something. That's what we say. However, we prove that we would do something, and get this, we prepare to do something by how we handle the Aryan paragraph in every day of our life. If we are passive with the Aryan paragraph in smaller degrees, which is what this is going to start with, this is going to start with a small degree uh, of known as the Aryan paragraph, and it's going to separate, separate out two churches. So I'm going to call this 14 years of proving. The w World War II ends in 1945. Hitler is going to uh, commit suicide in, it's like April 25th of 1945. So that just gives you the idea of the end of this regime and when uh, all is going to begin to shift back. But wow, walking through that. The players in the story. Adolf Hitler, the Aryan. Yeah, boo. Boy, it, it's, it's interesting. He's a fascinating character to study, but very dark. I mean, everything about the study of this guy, he's like, you feel like you're studying a demon. You really do. It's, it's so evil what you, what you brush up against when you even study this historically. You know, because other people, I can study th people historically that made really bad decisions and actually harmed a lot of people. And yet, you actually see them more as human because you sort of recognize their struggles and you can identify, oh yeah, they made a really bad mistake there. <laughs> This is, this is different. This is like something is in this guy that wants to destroy the, the testimony of righteousness. It's, it's really uh, dark. The Jewish people, we'll call them the attacked. The German church, I'm going to call them the silent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer will be symbolic of the confessing. So there were a lot more than uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there was around 150,000 that would have allied themselves with the confessing church. But out of a country of, oh, what was it, 45, 65, it might have been 65 million people, 150,000 is diddly squat. Okay, that's, that's like pathetic. So it's strange, but in 1931, which is where I'm starting this story, we're going to be in the United States of America. And what does the United States of America have to do with this? It's, this is so interesting to me. Uh, so introducing our hero Dietrich. So he's going to be symbolic of the confessing church. He is going to make the right decision in Germany. Okay, so I want you to see the preparations of this man of what's going on inside of him. The same things that need to be stirring inside of us. So in 1931, there is, uh, there's a movement in... Uh, in Germany that is going to be beginning where they're going to be conscripting and bringing men into the military. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to actually come to the United States, I want to say a couple times, and he's going to try and get away from the draft. He does not want to participate in what Hitler is doing. But before that, there's going to be this like period. In 1931, he's going to witness something a 25-year-old German theology student named Dietrich Bonhoeffer first visits the United States for seminary studies in New York. This young man notices something in America that bothers him. 
There are many churches in New York that have veered liberal in their slant, having left preaching the centrality of Jesus Christ and making Christianity merely a social gospel. And yet, these same liberal churches seem to be overlooking the most obvious social crisis in the entire country that lies right beneath their noses, and that is the treatment of the African Americans. Bonhoeffer is shocked. Just imagine a man coming from Germany. Okay, we're going to think about Germany as like, that is the country that has mistreated a people group more than any other people. And yet he, before all that happens, is going to come to the United States and be shocked and horrified by how we treat the African American as the church, not even just as a country, but as the church here in America. And even those that are standing for social justice are actually mistreating the African-American. Bonhoeffer is shocked by the complete lack of response on the part of the American church to this travesty. For he witnesses the African-American being treated as less than human. How could this be in a nation that talks so much about brotherhood, peace, and love? How could such a massive social contradiction exist without hardly a whisper of concern in response? Bonhoeffer attends Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, an African-American church, and he is greatly impacted, for he witnesses something marvelous there in and amongst these worshipers of Christ. My clicker is a little delayed here. He hears bold Christ-centered preaching that both convicts the hearer and moves them to real action. This church does not turn a blind eye to the plight of the African-Americans, but rather gives everything they have to fight against this bigotry and racism, but doing it as an outflow of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And so you can just sort of see the preparations of Bonhoeffer. He's like, something is really off here in this country, that they could be blind to this, and the Christian, the church, has not seen it. But those that do see it, the ones that are probably touched by it more, an African-American church, they literally give every bit of their resource. This is like, they're willing to lay down their lives to preserve the other African-Americans, to stand for the value of God's creation. But they do it as an outflow of the gospel of Christ Jesus. This deeply impacts Bonhoeffer. It's 1931, still two years prior to the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany, and at this time Bonhoeffer remarks that this disturbing issue of racial prejudice in America, listen, is not present in Germany. So he's like, oh, I've never, I mean, we don't have this type of issue in Germany. Isn't that fascinating what is happening beneath the surface in Germany that's going to creep up? But guess who's going to be ready for it? Bonhoeffer is going to recognize something that oftentimes even we in America don't see. We don't see these inconsistencies in our faith and in our practice. So Germany, 1933, the rise of Hitler. Sounds like a movie title. Winston Churchill is going to speak uh, you know, March 24th, 1933. He's going, this is his description of it. Adolf Hitler had at last arrived, but he was not alone. He had called from the depths the dark and savage furies. He had conjured up the fearful idol of an all-devouring Moloch, of which he was the priest and incarnation. It is not within my scope to describe the inconceivable brutality and villainy by which this apparatus of hatred and tyranny had been fashioned and was now to be perfected. Like I said, any, anytime you quote Winston Churchill, you have to make the comment like, yeah, as only Winston Churchill could say. Listen to this description, though. This is interesting, too. Churchill described Adolf Hitler as a ferocious genius. Yeah, that's a pretty good description of the devil right there. <laughs> a ferocious genius. The devil is a genius. 
and he's ferocious. He is seeking to devour. So I'm going to call this the Nazi menace, and we're going to give just an overview. I'm not necessarily trying to teach you World War II. Again, I'm trying to teach you spiritual lessons that are coming out of World War II. So January 1933, Adolf Hitler ascends to power in Germany. Oh, no. Okay, even the story of that is one of such conniving and such, I mean, it's, it's politics at its highest level, but it is like demonic politics, even to, for him to get to that position. You know, there's going to come a, a day in the, in the near future after Hitler gains power. It's called the Night of the Long Knives, and he is going to basically murder and assassinate every single person in politics that has a differing view than him. In like everything that's a threat to him, in one night, he purges it with his secret uh, trained soldiers, the SA, or the SS. And I mean, it's like, okay, you don't want to mess with this guy. April 7th, 1933, Hitler and the Nazi regime institute the law on the reconstruction of the professional civil service in Germany. And you're like, okay, so <laughs> what's that? Well, Listen, April 7th, 1933, the same time, the third paragraph of this new law is known as the Aryan paragraph, stipulating the removal of Jews from government positions and legal positions in the German government. Now, at first you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, they're removing Jews from government positions. Well, that means they have no influence over what's going to happen. They have no vote over what's going to happen. All legal positions, even lawyer positions, they're removed from. So they have no influence on law and government. Okay, now you could say it's not that big of a deal. I don't want to stand against this mighty tide that is, is coming into Germany. I mean, just let's be silent. That's exactly what the German church did. They are silent. And that's why I'm saying there's something that stands out when you see Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says, hey, guys, that's wrong. And he's looking around going, hey, am I the only one? that is recognizing that that's wrong. You can't do that to the Jews. That's inappropriate. That's not right. How could we allow this to happen in our society? April 25th, 1933, the law against the overcrowding of German schools and universities, essentially removing all Jews from all positions of educational oversight and influence in German schools. So on the 7th, they're removed from government and law. And then they're removed from any educational position. They will have no voice in the development of the country. May 10th, 1933. Books considered un-German, including those by Jewish authors, were destroyed in a nationwide book burning. So any voice that the Jews would have is now being eliminated. So any thought that they would have, because of course all Jews, according to Hitler, Jews are communists. They call them Bolsheviks. So Jews are communists. And you know, I, I'm not for communism, and so, yeah, I, I don't really want communism uh, to be taught and propagated either. However, he's associating a people group with an ideology. Very odd and strange and wicked thing is, is taking place. June 30th, 1933. These laws were again broadened to entail that even marriage to a non-Aryan, so marriage to someone who isn't of the pure bloodline, sufficed for exclusion from careers in government law and education. So now, it's like you have a German man who's married to a Jewish woman who is a professor in a university who suddenly is going to lose his job. Why? Because he's married to a Jew. So now if you're associated with a Jew, you get treated as the Jews. So as a result, it's like you could be infected. So all infection is being removed. 
July 1933 through September 15, 1935. So we're dealing with over two years. Due to intense Nazi pressure and Gestapo enforcement, nearly every business organization group and order within the German society effectively had barred the involvement and patronage of Jews. Jews, can't, Jews aren't welcome here. Jews can't shop here. The Jews were barred from the public health system, lost their honorary public offices, were driven from editorial offices and all theater positions as writers, directors, musicians, and actors, and were excluded from all agricultural work as well as medical work. To be a Jew was to be an outcast, removed from normal commerce and community. This is happening right beneath the nose of the church. And by the way, the German church was a huge church. The Protestant church in Germany was massive. There were church buildings everywhere. So this is not an unchurched environment any more than America would be. This is a churched environment with a strong heritage. September 16, 1935, the Nuremberg laws are instituted to officially protect German blood and German honor to do whatever it takes to remove this Jewish threat to their pure bloodline from their nation. So they look at the Jewish threat as a threat to their pure bloodline. We need to remove it. September 16, 1935 to December 1941. We'll call these six years of hell for the Jews was to only commence the beginnings of something even worse. So if you think this would be bad being a Jew, it's going to get worse when the war starts and the concentration camps begin to open up. But Jews are wanting to get out of the country. But to get out of the country, there are serious penalties. It's like Hitler himself wants to make it look like he's giving them every opportunity to go, but as you're going to find out, he's making it nearly impossible to the point where he has to conclude, well, we have an overpopulation problem. We have an issue. We need to get rid of the Jews, but they can't get out or they don't want to get out, so I guess we'll have to take this to a more drastic end. Six years of hell for the Jews was to only commence the beginnings of something even worse. And these six years of social hell, socializing of any form with Jews, stopped Germany, that, that sounds funny, with Jews, stopped Germany, shopping in it, stopped Germany. What is it? Socialized with any form of Jew uh, was stopped in Germany. I'm guessing that's probably what it was supposed to say. Shopping in any Jewish store ceased, causing a complete financial breakdown of the previously rather wealthy Jewish community. So you have Jews that no one will buy their products. No one will go into the store. If you go into a, Jew, a Jewish store, you will be treated as a Jew. You will now be blackballed. And so as a result, everyone in the culture is watching. Hitler created a watching culture. And so if someone sees you not report, then you're reported. So as a result, it's like the reporting on the non-reporters would get you in trouble. So everyone became a spy for Hitler for the sake of their own skin. And so as a result, if you befriend a Jew, if you're kind to a Jew, you're going to be treated as a Jew because obviously you're of the unmixed variety and you're not protecting German honor. Whew. Do you imagine being a Christian in that? Because we can't participate in that behavior. We can't do that. And yet to not do it, you could lose your families uh, could lose everything if you do this. You'd lose your career because you'll be blackballed. You'll be treated as a Jew. Most Jews, if enjoying any employment at all, were only able to function in menial jobs for paltry pay. While getting out of Germany and immigrating to another country also became an ever-increasing problem for the Jews. Listen to this. To leave 
to leave Germany required the Jews to pay a tax of near 90% of their wealth upon departing Germany. Could you imagine just to leave Germany? I mean, you'd think that he would want them to go. No, they had to leave everything behind. 90% of their wealth was taxed, which means they'd have nothing in the place that they're arriving. Add to this that by 1938, there was almost no countries on earth willing to receive these Jewish immigrants. That's another indictment on the rest of us. In other words, there's a problem. These Jews are looking to get out, but countries, I mean, you could include us in that, are like, hey, we can't handle that. We can't just take all that immigration in. So you start to reason through this, and it's like, wow, this is a crisis of epic proportions. What is the church supposed to do, I guess, is the key question. Not what a Republican or Democrat would do. What is the church supposed to do? I don't care about the politics of this. I care about the spiritual truth in it. In December of 1941, in the midst of World War II, Hitler declared that since Europe had no reasonable means by which to deport these Jews, that they would all need to be exterminated. The total number of Jews murdered during the resulting Holocaust is estimated at 5.5 to 6 million people. Now that's Germany. You go into Poland, you go into Russia, which was an extermination war, 27 million Soviet Russians are going to be killed. You go into what's going to happen, uh, you know, in China, 20 million. Now, that's not, it's all, you know, this com- com- combined effect, this, this momentum of evil that is cr- encroaching uh, upon the world. The story of the confessing church. So you now know what's happening. You know the tensions. So what's happening in the church? What's happening in you? Because that's what I ask. What's happening in me? I mean, I could just thank God that I'm not living in Germany in that time, and that's my easy out. It's like, well, I'm not living in Germany. It's not my issue. But why is it that I feel like it should be my issue? Why is it that I feel like I should be fully aware, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, that I may need to stand up and risk my life to do something here. Why is it that I feel like the Bible is commissioning me to be a confessor, not to be some guy silently hiding in the corner in the fetal position in my house, but that I am required with the Spirit of God in me, what does the Spirit of God want to do in this generation? Be silent? I doubt it. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to be symbolic, of course. He's just one of 150,000, but he was a leader of the Confessing Church. January 1933, we'll call it the concern. The Aryan paragraph is, is in there. It's like, wait a minute, that's not good, and you could just sort of hear it. I mean, I could hear it. All the, all the church is like, it's not that big of a deal. Guys, let's not overreact, okay? Let's not create problems. Who is this Hitler guy, and what is he really about? April 1933, the Aryan paragraph sparks the great debate in and amongst the church. Bonhoeffer begins to plead with the German pastors to stand up against this evil, to not submit to Hitler's move to control the church of Jesus Christ. He's trying to control the church. You know what he's saying to the church? Look, guys, I'm not going to treat you as a Jew. I, I actually want to support you. You just stay out of my business. Leave the Jew alone, and I will prosper you. Oh, wow, that's, that's good. That's really good. Leave the Jew alone, and you'll have it good. I'll prosper you. You know, hey, we'll even, 
increase pay for pastors. We'll increase, increase tax incentives for pastors. You know, what, what is going to cause the church to fall asleep on this issue? Well, they fall for it, guys. April 1933 through May 1934, just over a year, out of the 65 million Germans, 45 million considered themselves Protestant Christians. That is a massive percentage of a country, and that is a massive amount of people, 45 million Protestant Christians. Out of these 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany, only a scant 150,000 were willing to stand up against the Nazi regime and help the Jews. Out of, that means out of every 100 Christians, 97 of them turned a blind eye to what Hitler was doing. Out of every 100 Christians in Germany in 1934, only three were willing to stand up and declare the Aryan paragraph as wrong. Three out of 100. That means you know, in a room like this, uh, we're not looking so hot, guys. It's like a portion of one of us might stand up. In other words, we're, we're like falling to pieces. May 1934. Remember the name of this message? I call it the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration of Faith, the founding of the Confessing Church in Germany. 18,000 Protestant pastors in Germany in 1934. So, the church, you know, has you know, 45 million, right? But there's 18,000 pastors that are Protestant pastors. 3,000 of these pastors vehemently opposed the confessors and stood vigorously with Hitler. 3,000 of those 18,000 are actually siding with Hitler. Like, yeah, we think he's wonderful. We're with him. That, that's a lot of pastors, by the way, <laughs> standing with Hitler. 3,000 of them vehemently opposed Hitler in the Aryan agenda and stood vigorously with Jesus Christ. Yay! Yay for the 3,000 out of 45 million Christians. 3,000 pastors in that are going to be standing against Hitler. That's a diddly squat amount, right? Now here's the number I want you to work with in your soul. That leaves 12,000 out of the 18,000 pastors. 12,000 sat neutral, unwilling to take a side, unwilling to say anything for or against, unwilling to confess. Whew. I feel a vulnerability for us to fall into that category. I'm not as concerned about those of us in this room that we're going to side with Hitler. I'm more concerned about us being the 12,000 that are silent. August 1937. Remember, the war is going to start in September of 1939 when Germany invades Poland. However, Nazi, the Nazi regime was long before the start of the war. It's, no one was doing anything up to that point. That was finally the straw that broke the camel's back where the Allies were like, I guess we probably should do something. However, he had already begun to sweep across the land. He'd taken and raped Austria, taken Czechoslovakia, moved into the Rhineland. It's like, uh, I think we should maybe do something. So the start of the war is actually should have been in this time period here. August 1937, the confessing church was declared illegal. Well, no surprise, right? So all of these that are in the confessing church, that's now standing against German honor. That's standing against uh, the German race. And so they become the threat. They're linked with the Jews now. January 1938, Bonhoeffer is banned from Berlin 
and the Nazis begin burning down churches. So any of the churches that are going to dare stand against Hitler, well, the government will just tear them to the ground. They won't have a place to meet. I mean, that's a creative way of addressing a problem, right? Hitler, he kills those that oppose him. He doesn't just try and vote them out of office or picket them. He kills them. And so as a result, you show any resistance to Hitler, you're a dead man. This is sort of like, when, when's everyone going to figure this out? That's what Hitler's saying. Guys, I'm going to kill you. You're going to, and so it's fear that rules Germany right now. June 1939, Bonhoeffer returns to America. Remember he was there in 1931? Bonhoeffer returns to America to take a seminary teaching position, avoiding the military call-up issued by the Germans. So he knows he's in the confessing church. He knows he's illegal. His views are contrary. And so he actually gets out of Germany and comes to America because, hey, I'm, I'm a theological student. I'm going to study here. Boy, I can feel this. It's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can just even think, have Eric, you know, take his family. We're moving to America. We're like out of here. I'm not going to fight for Hitler. And, you know, I'm just a, I'm going to risk my family's life and other people's life as long as I'm here. This is an extremely fascinating moment in, in Bonhoeffer's life. June 1939. So remember, the war is going to start in September. Bonhoeffer writes a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr, and he says this. I have had time to think and to pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. I have come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. It's interesting how he knows that there's a war. It's like he understands that this is a conquest of great magnitude and he recognizes he needs to be with his people i mean this is this is a decision that is not normal okay he's out of there he has an excuse he's a theological student he's out of there he's in a safe place and this is 26 so i'll just read it on the next page june to july 1939 only 26 days after he arrived in new york to teach bonhoeffer returns to germany September 1st, 1939, World War II begins when Germany invades Poland. October 1940, the Gestapo banned Bonhoeffer from speaking in public, and soon after he was forbidden to publish his writings. April 1943, Bonhoeffer arrested by the Gestapo, incarcerated in Tegel Prison in Berlin for two years. So here we are, April 9th, 1945, key day in Bonhoeffer's life. <laughs> taken to Flossenburg concentration camp, marched naked to the gallows, executed for high treason. Bonhoeffer was 39 years old. His final words were this. This is the end for me, the beginning of life. Look at 21 days after this, in 1945, April 30th, Hitler dies. The mastermind's career ends. The war essentially ends at that point, even though there are still a lot more details that are going to be ironed out. The resistance is, is gone. 21 days before Hitler dies, he's executed. It's like, ah! At the same time, am I willing to be such a man that is marched naked to the gallows and hung because I refuse to be silent? That's what goes through the mind of Eric Ludi. I recognize that we don't see Hitler alive today. 
But the same demonic powers that were behind Hitler are at work today. And the question is, am I willing to rise up and defy them? Am I willing to rise up for the sake of truth and speak? Or maybe I should translate this your direction. Are you? Turning up the pipe organs volume. So one of the statements in history is that uh, these train loads, train cars full of Jews that were being carted off to concentration camps, they were stacked in, they were packed in so tight that even if someone fainted, which a lot of them would because it would be so hot in there, they would, they would faint standing up because they couldn't fall anywhere. They were packed in so tightly. And those that were against the sides of the cars could see out through the slats and they were passing a German church, I guess on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever it was, and they were singing. Uh, and the pipe organ was, was playing. And so the Jews were thinking if there was anyone who would understand their plight and would stand for them, it would be the church of Jesus Christ. And so they began to scream for help, screaming at the top of their voices, all of them in these train cars. And the church hears it. And the church's response was to turn up the volume of the pipe organ and drown it out. How often do we turn up the volume of our life, even of our worship, so that we don't have to hear what's actually going on. The 12,000 muzzled pastors is this us. Winston Churchill speaking about Great Britain in this time. This was one of those awful periods which recur in our history when the noble British nation seems to fall from its high estate, loses all trace of sense or purpose, and appears to cower from the menace of foreign peril, frothing pious platitudes while foemen forge their arms. But Eric, how are we to stop this? After all, what can little old me do to stop the satanic train on its way to Auschwitz concentration camp? It's a good question. So imagine you're in the church building and the rest of the church turns up the pipe organ volume. Well, say you don't agree with it. What are you supposed to do? Go running out, jump on the tracks and get mowed down by the, the train? What is one person supposed to do? That's what we all end up saying. That's what the devil even says. You can't do anything. You can't stop this. What's a Christian to do? Now, I took this list. I think I collected this, oh, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. Okay, so some of this you're going to notice ha is dated, but I actually purposely kept it the way it was so you can even just see the decline of our culture even since I wrote this. It is considered judgmental, uncouth, and inappropriate to ever speak ill of abortion. I don't know if you've picked up on that in this culture, but if you actually publicly declare that abortion is wrong, you are actually the wrong one. Here you are saying that it's wrong to kill a baby, and yet you are, for whatever reason, wrong. You ever thought about how weird that is? That is weird. Now, it should be weird for someone to say abortion is totally fine. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me clarify here. You're into the protecting the rights of all these other people and these minorities, but it's okay to kill a little baby. And of course, you know the argument. That's not a baby, that's a massive tissue. The shocking dimensions of this are very real. That it is actually, I mean, to stand up for a Jew and say, hey, it's, it's not right that you're treating the Jews this way, was politically incorrect in Germany. So to do it would mean the breakdown of your popularity ratings. It is considered hateful, incorrect, and soon criminal to refer to homosexuality as a sin. 
Now, what's interesting about that, like, for instance, homosexuality is a sin, right? But so is adultery. So is stealing. In other words, it's just part of the wrongness of what's happened. When there's a twisting of humanity, it results in distortions. So we as Christians are entrusted with the word of God. Why? So that it would correct us from distortions. So the spirit of God could work in us to straighten us so that we could see clearly to help others so that they could be free, so they could find fullness of life. However, you can't help someone find fullness of life. They could be driving their car and headed straight for a cliff. You can't even put up a sign that says cliff up ahead without being hateful to say, but there's, but, but, like, take your sign down. We are being prohibited from helping. We are being handcuffed from being able to do that which is loving. What should the church do? It is considered ignorant, anti-intellectual, and academically disruptive to oppose the reigning ideas of Darwinian evolution. What the butchery of Christians, listen, listen to this, this is when ISIS was full bore. The butchery of Christians in Syria and Iraq by ISIS forces is considered merely issues of the Middle East, unfortunate and someone else's business to 97 out of every 100 Christians in America right now. It is something to repress, attempt to forget, and block out. So the fact that our brothers and sisters over in foreign lands are being butchered, it's like, well, that's really not our business. I'm just glad I'm not over there. Whew, praise God we live in America. Instead of recognizing, it's like right down the street, you have a Jewish family that is being oppressed. It's like, well, it's not my home. I'm not Jewish. I'm just glad I'm not Jewish. I'm glad we're not Jewish because I'm glad we don't need to go through that. Instead of recognizing you are being made aware of something so that you in your soul can respond as the Spirit of God would respond. What does the Spirit of God think? The Supreme Court is deciding on the issues of redefining marriage in this country to include those of the same sex. Would this constitute a reason for Christians to confess the truth of God's word? Now, that actually did happen. We have redefined marriage, according to the Supreme Court now. And so that was, this was before that even happened. Countless little lives are currently hanging by a thread caught in the machinery of governmental foster care in this country. This is a really powerful one, guys. There are more children in need of help than help is being offered by, the Christian, by Christian families. There are more homosexual couples adopting right now in America than Christian families adopting. Hmm. The only real church is the church that does something. There's two churches. There's a counterfeit and there's an authentic and Jesus makes it very clear, guys, in Matthew 25. And I'm stirred by the same thing, and I'm, I mean, it just, it, it, it hurts me in, inside, even. It's like it pricks me. It's like, Eric, where are you? Don't just talk it. Where are you? And so I'm, when, when I see him separate sheep from goats, and the goats go to his left and the sheep go to his right, and he clarifies, and he says, when I was naked, what did you do? When I was hungry, what did you do? Now, we could say it this way. When I was vulnerable and in the womb, what did you do? When I was in the foster care system, what did you do? When I was being hunted by ISIS, what did you do? When I was imprisoned because of my faith in, in the underground church in China, and I spent 10 years in prison away from my family, what did you do for me and for my wife and kids? And I feel like so many of us, now I don't want us to by something we can't do. Like, I can't solve all these issues. What I just named is so much bigger than Eric Ludi and us. It's not bigger than God. And God doesn't assign us to respond to everything. 
He assigns us to respond to the one thing in front of us. When we know what we ought to do, we do it. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So for us, it's learning to act instead of just think good Christian doctrine. It's to live out Christianity is the key. So the church that does, just listen to this collection of scriptures in Matthew, and this is how we're going to finish. And when he had called his disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He gave them strength to do. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said to them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Do not fear them. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who finds his life for my sake will find it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Father, we are vulnerable to being the 12,000 silent. We are vulnerable to doing nothing. We are vulnerable to being goats and tares that do not produce when the sun is shining and the moisture is, is coming and watering us. Lord, you desire us to grow up and produce fruit. You desire to have access to us via your Holy Spirit and to do the work of the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would find our salvation firmly and at rest in you, in your work, and that we would yield to allow you to work through us. Lord, this isn't our agenda, our role to change the world. It is yours. We must allow you to work in us and through us. Here we are, Lord. Do as you must. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.